Rock finally hit its peak in 1985. Rock finally hit its peak in 1985. Rock finally hit its peak in 1985. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and it is with heavy heart that I must announce an upcoming event I'm promoting. <laughs> is it a funeral? For- <laughs> it Well, kind of. Let me explain. On July 12th, I'm going to be hosting the RIP Rock and Roll event. At Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago, that's right next to the former Kaminsky Park. Everyone is invited to come, bring any record with a song claiming that rock is alive, not dead, or will never die. We're going to take all those records, pile them up, light them on fire, and finally admit that rock has officially died and that disco was always the superior genre anyways. Cool. (laughs) But it's with a heavy heart that you announced this because you're such a big rock fan. Well, yeah, obviously. I would <laughs> it makes too much sense for me to be the one to host and MC this event. Are there gonna be like fifty cent long islands there? Um, yeah, we're considering that. You know, I was gonna wait to announce this too, but pretty sure that we're gonna get Gene Simmons down there to sing a <laughs> chorus of God gave rock and roll to you sixty nine times in a row to close out. Nice. Nice. Wow, I had no idea I was actually on track with funeral there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's time we all admit it. Yeah. You know, rock is dead. Let's send it off. I'm co-host Jeremy with the red coat. Like Eddie Murphy. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. You're raw, Jeremy. You're very I'm raw. Very raw. Well, I'm co-host Peter Cook, and I'm here to buy stuff. For a dollar, I can get all kinds of stuff. Now, you'll notice something. I have braces, so I can only buy stuff good for me. I don't know that reference. Okay. Have none of you watched the heavy metal, the is it Metalhead Teens in a Record Store 1989 video on YouTube? I missed that one. <laughs> all right. is, that, is that the prequel to Heavy Metal Parking Lot? Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll call it that. I don't think chronologically okay. that works, but we'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're here today. Uh, to, we're trying to proclaim that rock ain't dead. Sean, you kind of threw a no, monkey. No, no, no. Listen, rock is, rock is dead, but that doesn't mean we can't celebrate it in its heyday at its absolute peak. Some might even say, well, yeah, well, good. That we brought the perfect record for the occasion. Then heavy petting. Rock Ain't Dead, 1985. And this is an album that we have wanted to cover. I think I feel like we've been talking about featuring this album since pretty much the beginning of the podcast. All three of us are super hyped on Heavy Pettin', this album in particular. This is a big one. And we've been wanting to feature it, but we just couldn't find a whole lot of information on it. 
Well, but yeah, we found the perfect guest who is a primary source. To my understanding, experienced things somewhat firsthand, more so through his father, who was really involved in this scene. It may be April 1st, but we ain't fooling you when we say that coming in, dialing in from Cabo Abo, Indiana, is our guest, Rex Ferrari. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> Fuck yeah, I heard it. Sick shreds. Fucking sick, right, boys? Yeah, it was pretty fucking yeah. sick, I gotta say. Welcome. It's it's pretty sick, and I think, I think that kind of proves Rock Ain't Dead right there, but not as much as Rock Ain't Dead by Heavy Pet and... So yeah, my uh, yeah my 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 father Rex Ferrari Senior the second was involved with uh, a lot of the recording of this. He was a roadie for a lot of uh, bands of this ilk at the time, and I was probably eight or nine in the studio with the uh, recording of Rock Ain't Dead. So some of this I remember, some of this uh, I was reading through Dad's journal after uh, the safe fell on him out of that window. Oh, um, I heard about that. It was bad. It was a faulty safe, so the the bottom was broken. So it really was the cartoon sort of thing where we had to get the combination and open it up to get most of them out. Uh, but yeah, he, I, I read through his journal later on and got a lot of this information here. So I, I think we should kick it off right away with uh, what was, I guess, their their hit single, Soul Survivor. Yes, I'm sure most of our fans will probably be familiar with this mega hit, but we're just going to take a little time to reconnect with it with fresh ears before we dive into the the story of legendary band heavy petting
Thanks to this album and honestly, primarily this song, I think we can all agree that rock finally hit its peak in 1985. And I also, I think I speak for all of us that when I think of rock and roll, I think of this song first. This is the first song. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say this instantly soul survivor just pops into my head and, you know, go on from there, but it, it always starts with heavy pedants soul survivor. It's the apex of rock and roll. Yeah. I mean it's it's really up there with like, you know, Soul Survivor by Asia and like Soul Survivor by Blue Oyster Cult. Like it's the greatest rock songs of all time essentially. Mhm. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah, it's I, a well that just never dries up. Well, and until now that rock is dead for all bands in general, but in 1985 and the years surrounding. I mean, there's a lot of post-apocalyptic imagery in the song that wasn't there and actually dad was in the studio recommending different things that would lead to the downfall of society and i mean i think that the uh the feminist leanings in the song are really understated dad before he got into being a roadie dad was a speechwriter for gloria steinem so i think that's where a lot of like my sensibilities come from personally see now that makes a lot of sense that really connects a lot of dots there for me yeah well, the band wanted to call it Whole Survivor, and it was a totally different sort of thing, but he wanted a, a bit of a spin on things. That was wise. Well, yeah, I guess since we're we're starting to get into this inside scoop on the band, I've, I'm going to start off with a first question for you here, Rex. This album features two songs with the word Angel in the title, and many fans would consider this to be the band's most spiritual album. What do you think influenced this theme around the time of recording, since you were right there in the studio when it was happening? I mean, I remember them trying to uh, start their own religion around that time, and so the Angel songs were kind of popping up there. I think it was for mostly tax purposes, uh, but also, you know, blowjobs and stuff. But they got wasted and ordered a bunch of those big tall hats that the Pope wears, and uh, Hamie, the, the singer's mom, spent like two weeks embroidering a heavy praying on the front of them. And they wrote the two angel songs to try to like get into the groove or like, you know, get some of that Jim and Tammy Faye money that was big at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it was the 80s. Been. Like, Yeah. I mean, being white people who amassed their wealth through deception and bad faith was pretty big at the time. I mean, you know, that and bomber jackets, which like kind of went out of style. Yeah. Uh, anyways, they eventually forgot about the whole religion thing. And they thought about changing the word angel to anal whenever it shows up, but the album was already off to the printing plant and they couldn't, they couldn't make it happen. Interesting. So they were right down to the wire in the creative field, just couldn't decide what to get on there. I mean, showbiz moves at such, such a pace, you know? Um, Yeah. Well, it just speaks to the, the wide range of influences that this band really had. You know, they put everything on the table when they were creating art like this. I mean, you have to when you make this kind of music, as you know, Heavy Pet and, and uh, myself do. I mean, that's why I wear cowboy boots with cleats on the bottom because you know, life life you just got to dig into, and that's the way I mm. I do things. I love that words to live by. Mm. Speaking of influences, I noticed that prior to this album, Heavy Petten was opening for Kiss and Ozzy Osbourne. Would you say that? I mean, I feel like I'm hearing it in parts. Would you say Gene Simmons left his prints on this album? Uh, I mean, all over the place, really. Like, vocally, Hammy's doing that sort of vocal style where it sounds like he's pumping helium up his ass. But he also got um, tongue surgery to look like Gene. But his insurance was his insurance was 
you know, pretty bad. So the only doctor he could find who could do it was uh, this guy named Dr. T-Bird in uh, Bettendorf, Iowa. He did the surgery while Hamey was passed out in a beanbag chair one night. Uh, he said he got his PhD in prison, which is like, you know, pretty progressive to let him do that. He also told me, uh, I remember as a kid, he told me that people from New Zealand have tails. All things considered, I think he did an all right job, even if like, you know, vowels in the occasional case of tongue sweats kind of got to be an issue. So is his, was this surgery before the album then? Yeah. Like right before, you know, they did the tour and, uh, you know, Hammy was, you know, so we got we got to tap into this Kiss dollar. So uh, it was it was the day before he had to do his vocals. Uh, he he went up to see Doctor T Bird uh, in the Quad Cities and got that done. So that's why, you know, if you look at the pictures on the on the back of the album too, and the front of the album, very early Photoshop, his jaw, his jaw was replaced with um, Jennifer Connelly's jaw in um, in Labyrinth. Oh yeah, this is right around that same time. Yeah, you know, they had started pre-production on there, and uh, my dad had had some ends there through Bowie and uh, the Codpiece Wholesaler. I, I had a feeling that was it. I mean, people just don't understand, you know, the the, the depth of, of work and uh, debauchery and uh, faith that goes into something like making sure that Rock ain't dead. A lot of heavy praying, right? Mm, mm-mm-mm. You know, these guys are Scottish, right? They're not part of the Sunset Strip scene, even though they sound very much like a lot of that music. They were Scottish, but there, there's a there's a Sunset Strip in Scotland too. Essentially, uh, they would they kind of cut their teeth at uh, a strip club called the Scrunicorn in Scotland. You could pull up. I mean, they they mostly played uh, on Tuesdays when Tuesday afternoons. That is when you could get like a three dollar bowl of haggis and just kind of pull up to sniffers row and chew on it while uh, the girls were dancing and the band was playing but you know i really kind of made them come into their own and figure out their own style man to be a fly on the wall in that room right mm. yeah i saw a lot of dead flies uh fall <laughs> off the wall on that room they were healthy when they flew in and uh i was bartending there at the time i was 12 by then rock isn't dead but all the flies are <laughs> yeah you know it reminds me of the famous lemmy quote where he said that you know, he wanted he wanted to be the band where if you moved in, your you know the grass would die in the neighbors' yards or something like that. And Heavy Petten wanted to be the band that would kill every fly that was in the strip clubs they played, and that was their their mission statement from the beginning. Yeah, they wanted to be the band that made syphilis famous. Yeah, well, on the map, history will tell if they made it happen or not. Well, from such humble beginnings, the band obviously pretty quickly rose to fame. In fact. By their first album, their debut album called Letting Loose, they were already working with legendary guitarist Brian May, of course, from the band Queen. However, he wasn't involved in the second album. Do you have any insight as to why he didn't produce the sophomore release? Uh, I mean, that was that was actually a different Brian May. Oh, uh, there was a mix up at the label and they sent over a guy from Jiffy Lube. Not, not like a guy that did oil changes, but I mean, he worked in corporate. I think he I think he wanted to break into music production. Uh, the same thing happened to Bang Tango when they were working on Psycho Cafe. They thought they were getting Eddie Van Halen to engineer, but the label sent over a guy with the same name who like sprayed down the elephant's balls at the zoo or some stuff. But I mean, anyways, like the the not 
Brian May from Queen did a good job, I think. It, it took a few days before they figured out it wasn't actually Brian May from Queen. I mean, they had the same haircut, so, like, I get it. But, I mean, it makes sense why, yeah, you know, I kept asking him stuff about Queen, and he just kind of, like, changed the subject to be about rotating tires. And, I mean, the band thought it was a metaphor, so, I mean, they just kept him around. Makes sense. I mean, the name is spelled the same way, so if people want to be confused about that, I'm sure they didn't mind. Yeah, I mean, and at the end, they, they just... The label asked Brian May if he would be okay, the, the Brian May from Queen, if he would be okay putting his name on it, and uh, he never got back, so they just said yes. So Okay, so is there any bad blood between the real Brian May and Heavy Petten, or have they actually never even talked to each other? They, they've never met. Okay, all right, well that, that, settles, that settles some stories for sure. I'm, I'm sure the fans will be happy to hear that. I mean, the... Uh... R slash heavy petting the Reddit page has debated on in a long time and it, you're kind of getting exclusive. Yeah. Exclusive right here on I'd buy that for a dollar. Juicy. A juicy exclusive. <laughs> juicy exclusive. <laughs> that was one of the strippers at the Scrunicorn. <laughs> well, shall we listen to another track from this album? I think that would be ideal. What's next? Let's listen to the song Angel. Yeah, they they kind of they kind of spin it around in an interesting way. I think it's about fucking an angel personally. Interesting. Getting real personal. Well, wow, that sounds like a black metal subject. Norwegian sure. black metal. <laughs>
so I've heard a rumor that there's an alternate take of that song on the unreleased BBC recordings they did. Do you know, Rex, if those are if there's any plan to release those, if those will ever see the light of day? I mean, legally, I cannot speak on that. But I will say, if Tim Bellows, who now lives at 1789 Primrose Court in Rochester, New York, can ever pull his coke-smeared nose out of his asshole and figure out his unfinished business at Polydor, there's a shot. But again, legally, I cannot speak on that. Well, thoughts and prayers that it happens, right? Mm. It is a ripper, if I remember correctly. It was... uh, it was my alarm. Uh, we had a very uh, primitive alarm clock that you could put songs into to wake up to. When one thing me and my dad liked to do was shoplift from Sharper Image when I was a youth, and yeah, I would wake up to that song every day for years. Uh, the BBC re- version, yeah, beautiful memories. Hmm. It sounded like they they dropped their name in there. They said "heavy petting" in the song. Well, I mean. Branding was important even back then. Some people have said that Heavy Petten kind of invented modern advertising in a way. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think of them less as a band and more of a lifestyle. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, they they did try to have a, a gathering, sort of like the, the Juggalos have. They tried to do their own sort of festival years later. It, it ended up being mostly playing at the Jones County Fair and Iowa, but it could have grown into so much more. They went on between Suzanne Vega and a Yes cover band, and it was almost a breakout moment again for them. But the pressure just kind of got to be too much, you know, the modern world well, and everything. Well, it's my understanding when they called it the Heavy Petten Festival, they attracted the wrong crowd. Yeah, there was a lot of <clears throat> furries. And what have you, which is not particularly what the band was into, though they have nothing against it. Well, Rex, I had a question that I've been dying to find out more insight on and hoping you can provide some of that. Uh, In a 2005 interview with Metal Sludge, heavy petting guitarist Punky Mendoza was asked to choose which he preferred between two other people named Punky. Punky Meadows, the guitarist of the 70s glam rock band Angel, funny enough, or Punky Brewster, the 80s sitcom character. Punky Mendoza of Heavy Petten replied that he said he preferred Punky Meadows from the band Angel because the producers of Punky Brewster stole his name. Do you know anything about that? Anything further? Yeah, well, me and me and Saleo Moonfry are close in age, and we had the same casting agent, so when that show was going to come out i uh i was it was between me and her for the for the lead <laughs> oh yeah Soleil uh, was... was the actress who portrayed punky brewster for those who don't know right yeah and we were we were sort of neck and neck and no hard feelings but i uh i i was such a big heavy petten fan having essentially been raised by the band that uh, uh i would call myself skunky mendoza also i i smelled a bit as a child i had a certain parmesan and old tires musk to me mm. so you called yourself you, you you looked up to the punky mendoza of heavy petting so you were skunky mendoza yeah you know and then uh that sort of i would always brew the coffee 
in the morning for the for the band. So it turned into Skunky Brewster. And then as it sort of progressed, they someone heard me be called that in the audition. And uh, you know, once they cast her, you know how you know how showbiz can be incestuous and backstabbing. Yeah. Uh, it's brutal out I there. Think, yeah, and I think Punky Mendoza just kind of felt a bit slighted by the entire uh Moon Fry family. I see. Mm. I see. Now, why do you think you didn't get the role? Did you go too big in the audition? I went method. Yeah. I mean, okay. I was, I, yeah, I was, I was nine and, uh, really kind of got into the, uh, precocious foster child role. I believe I stabbed someone in the audition. Man, it's, it's always a gamble, but you got to go big. Sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, it worked for uh, it worked for De Niro, right? Right. I mean, my my two films, uh, Sex Ferrari and Sex Ferrari Two, two Sex Ferraris, are uh, currently lost media. But there has been some scuttlebutt through the electronic mail, letting me know that the trailer to Sex Ferrari is potentially found. Interesting. Still yeah. no chance of unearthing those two lost classics of cinema, though. Yeah, there was there was a mix up at the uh, at the studio, and they took the film and they <clears throat> they taped Philadelphia two over top of uh, and both yeah. of them separately. Yeah, they I, they needed a backup copy, and that's what they that's what they grabbed. That's, you know, one of history's great tragedies. You think of the Universal Studio fire, the burning of the Library of Alexandria, and the overdubbing of Sex Ferrari and Sex Ferrari 2, two Sex Ferraris. Yeah, and Philadelphia 2 just wasn't even much to write home about. (laughs) Hot take, damn. (laughs) Now, we all know that Heavy Petten competed in the Eurovision competition in 1987. And it's just amazing to look back and see that they didn't instantly take it. I mean, they were heavily favorited and just knocked out early for some reason. And the question is always out there. Why did they fail to connect with the Eurovision audience? And would they be more successful today? Were they just too far ahead of their time in 1987? I mean, some people's genius just isn't recognized in their own lifetime, you know? But they are still alive, though, right? Right. So there's potentially still time for their genius to be recognized. I, I, I mean, listen. Are you going to tell? Uh, are you going to tell Van Gogh how to paint? Are you going to tell Bruce Willis how to sing the blues? You know, Bruce Willis, the movie actor. The did he make movies? The blues singer. The blues oh, you're, singer. You're talking about Bruno. Bruno. Yeah. He was in movies. Yeah, the famous harmonicist that occasionally acted. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, maybe he dabbled. I I know more of uh, of his oral output. Right, well, you were were deep in the business, so it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there was was some crossover there, but, you know, when I cruise down the highway of life, music rides shotgun at all times. Love it. Well, I think that's about all the time we have. Um, Rex, thank you so much for being here, shedding some light on this obvious classic, something that we've been meaning to talk about for so long. 
we've got just enough time to give you a few plugs if you got anything coming up and then we're going to play one last song I had a Christmas single drop a couple months ago called Stuffed Stockings. You can check that out on Bandcamp and Spotify. I uh, Under your given name? I can name, get my hands. Rex Ferrari? Uh, Rex Ferrari, yeah. I mean, not Rex Ferrari the fourth. Uh, you know, we're keeping the government out of this one. But yeah, under Rex Ferrari, you can find it on Bandcamp and uh, Spotify. If I can get my hands on this Sex Ferrari trailer that will hopefully be released and i'm actually going through my old demos from uh decades ago and re-recording them with modern production and what have you so my essentially my debut album uh wet behind the ears should be out shortly wow well can't wait to take all of that in and you know especially knowing your upbringing and your pedigree coming from heavy petting live in the studio back Mm -hmm. in the day can only imagine how good your own content will be with influences like that. I uh, I don't like to toot my own horn, but I am the world's best rocker and eighth greatest lover. <laughs> eighth greatest? Well, that's, that's not bad. That's pretty good. Stiff, stiff competition up there. I moved up one once B. Arthur died. Congratulations. Thank you. Golden. Mm. Wow. Great shower. What are we leaving the people with? <laughs> I think we're going to have to go out on Throw a Party. This is a song about, uh, you know, the Iran-Contra situation. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, thank you, listeners, for tuning into this very special edition of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Happy April, fools. (laughs) Sick. My name is co-host Peter Cook. My name is co-host Jerry Marigles. I'm co-host Sean. I'm Rex Ferrari, baby. <laughs>